Hi, I'm Lucas. And I'm Jesse. And this is Double Blind. Our goal with this podcast is to report on breaking science-related news stories and do it in a really responsible way. To go into the actual science behind each story and then have a realistic discussion of the impacts and future implications of each one. So if you're curious, come with us. We think it'll be a lot of fun. This week on Double Blind, how your income affects the way your brain looks. And we'll talk about how to make the Lego blocks of life. All right, Lucas. So tell us about how my paycheck affects my brain. All right. Well, my attention was caught by the headline, Poverty Shrinks Brains from Birth. And that, well, that I was skeptical of that. Yeah, that seems like a pretty significant thing. Exactly. And I, I went into reading this study with a very skeptical mind. But honestly, that's kind of what they found. Essentially, the motivation behind this is we've known about differences in income or uh, socioeconomic disparities being associated with differences in cognitive development. Right. And neuroscientists have wondered for a long time what sort of factors play into this. Could it be uh, inadequate nutrition uh, early in life? Could it be stress in a household environment? Or could it be lack of access to educational opportunities? Okay. This study wanted to figure out if those differences in cognitive development are also reflected in physical brain structure. Okay, interesting. So they started with a lot of people. They started with about 1,100 Americans between the ages of 3 and 20. That is a huge sample size. It is. It's the largest study to date uh, dealing with this question. And they were looking for developing brains. So they really had a range of brains from early development at age 3 to the last stages of development around age 20. Okay. They subjected all of these people to high-resolution MRI scans. And they calculated the brain surface area. From those scans. Interesting. So that's in all of the little folds and everything. In all the little folds. Yeah, you see a brain, it looks like, I don't know, twisted worms all bunched together. Mm -hmm. This is all of the area over those worms. Okay. To use the technical term. (laughs) (laughs) So they then compared the surface area of these brains to the family income uh, of the parents of these uh, subjects. Okay, I see. Yeah. So, uh, just to be clear, this is not IQ or any measure of cognitive ability. It's just an indication of physical brain structure. All right. Uh, however, previous studies have associated brain surface area with intelligence. So there's how, some degree. How strongly correlated is that? It's not great, but there's a correlation there. There's a significant correlation there. Okay. Yeah. And, and, I mean, even if there isn't, this is still a study that indicates that the structure of your brain, regardless of what that means, is affected by your income level. Precisely, right? So this is not a deterministic factor on intelligence in any way, but it can be a an indicator. Okay, that's really cool. Yeah. So the question is, what did they find? They found, first of all, and this point should be made very clear, they found a huge spread in data across all income levels. So if you actually look at their data plotted up, the spread in the lowest income level is as large as that in the highest. Huh. So you can't really see much from all the data if you plot all 1,100 points on there. Right. There's but huge variation everywhere. Huge variation everywhere. But if you look at the mean in each of those income groups, you do see a pattern. And that is that children from higher income families tend to have more surface area. Hmm. And this is particularly clear at those lower income classes. So children from families with income of less than $25,000 per year 
had 6% less service area than those from families with income greater than $150,000 per year. Wow. So what exactly is the average surface area of a human brain? Like what kind of numbers are we working with here? So to give a really rough, like physical idea, in your brain, there's about one to two pages of newspaper crumpled up inside your head. Okay, that makes sense. That makes, yeah. So if you're thinking 6% of that, you're thinking, you know, not an insignificant amount. You're thinking a couple uh, little newspaper columns there. So that's the result. Now, there's some issues with the study. One of which is that in the U.S., where the study was done, there's a very close relationship between race and income. There's a correlation there. And there are also differences in brain structure across different races. This is something that hasn't really been studied to sufficient detail by any means, but the authors admit it could be a confounding factor in the study. Hmm. Now, the real question is, there's this 6% difference, but why? Right. So childhood experiences, we think, are really important for brain development. And the researchers here suggest that children from higher income family may be exposed to more of these intellectual experiences at a young age. What you have to remember is they really just made a measurement in two areas, income and brain surface area, and found this relationship. Okay. No, no other, they didn't put people through control trials or anything like that. This was simply a measurement and a result. So we don't want to read too much into this. Well, we don't want to read too much into this, but if I were you, here's what I read into it. The fact that this difference exists might be true. But this study also shows that that difference doesn't have to exist because there is as much spread at the lowest income class as there is mm -hmm. at the highest in terms of brain surface area. And what that shows is that socioeconomic status is not an insurmountable barrier when it comes to brain development. Okay, that's really cool. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, what's next? Are the researchers going to try and do sort of more studies into what this actually means or... There wasn't a lot published in terms of the next steps in this. I think this study did a good job of actually figuring out this pattern. The next question would be, what are the factors that go into that brain development? And that would be something that requires more information about people's lives to go into a study like this. That's something you need to know what sort of uh, educational opportunities they were exposed to, what sort of things they tended to eat, uh, and you need some sort of measure of their stress in life. Right. Yeah, that so that expensive. Would, it's very expensive and very involved, but that would be the next step. Very cool. So let's talk a little bit about the origins of life. Oh, I like this topic. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a very, very interesting area. Um, it's one that we really don't know a lot about. So when there's significant research out of where the heck did life come from, I think it's a pretty cool thing. Absolutely. This is one of my favorite topics. Yeah. So in this case, the headline that jumped out at me was, researchers may have solved origin of life conundrum. That's that's a big statement. That is a big statement. That's quite a claim. So I let's delve into what's actually going on here. So basically what happened is that researchers at the University of Cambridge found a couple of compounds that they could mix together in certain conditions to create, in theory, all of the precursors to life. Okay. So what we're talking about here are nucleic acids, amino acids, and lipids. All right. So in 2009, the same group of researchers discovered that with two compounds, acetylene and formaldehyde, which we all know, mm -hmm. they could produce two out of the four nucleotides in RNA, which is one of the building blocks of life. Right. So they're looking for the things that go into RNA, which was thought to be a precursor for DNA. 
right? Exactly, because at some okay. point, these the first RNA molecules mm-hmm. had to come about in some way. And we yeah. don't really know how that happened because this was all, we're talking primordial soup way, way, way back. Yeah. Um, <laughs> there's none of that left. We don't know how those molecules developed. So we're constantly trying to figure out where they came from. We're thinking before the first cells or anything. Oh, yeah. We're, we're thinking like well long before, before even single-celled organisms. Okay. Yeah. These are just cool. the chemicals that need to come together to even form these early building blocks of DNA. Right. We're not building life here. We're building the building blocks. <laughs> exactly. We're, we're building mold- the Lego bricks. We're molding the Lego bricks. Yeah. Yeah. So this was a pretty cool study from 2009. But as it turns out, those two precursors are actually relatively complex compounds themselves. Um, formaldehyde yeah. is not a simple molecule. No. So, you know, back to the lab. Here we are, six years later, and this group of researchers from Cambridge have now come up with this new study. And what they've done is they found that with just hydrogen sulfide, hydrogen cyanide, and UV light, they could produce nucleic acid precursors, those precursors for RNA, and the starting materials needed to make amino acids and lipids. That's awesome. Yeah, right there. Yeah. Those those are all of your building blocks. Those are all your Lego bricks you need. Wow. Yeah. So what are these compounds? Hydrogen cyanide is extremely common in comets. Oh. And as it turns out, comets were really plentiful in the early days of Earth, and they rained down on Earth for hundreds of years. That's because we were building the planet out of all these comets and asteroids, which were colliding together and sticking together, right? Yeah, these exactly. Were the leftovers. Yeah, so in that early formation period, there was a lot of hydrogen cyanide that is thought to have been in the primordial soup. Okay. Hydrogen sulfide and UV radiation are also thought to have been very common in early Earth. UV radiation, of course, from the sun. The atmosphere wasn't as formed as it is now. So all of these compounds are thought to have been in abundance at at that time when we think life started to come about. Right. Which makes this what the researchers refer to as plausible chemistry. Um, Okay. It is plausible that this is how it could have happened. Of course, we don't know for sure. So slight variations in chemistry and energy could have favored the creation of, uh, you know, nucleic acids over lipids or um, amino acids. So they're theorizing right now that if this is a possibility, some of those compounds could have formed in separate areas and then rainwater would have brought them all to the same pool or lake where they would have combined to form those first self-replicating molecules. Okay, is there any reason why they couldn't have formed in the same place? It's just unlikely, because while all of those compounds can form from those three precursors, the UV, the hydrogen cyanide, and the hydrogen sulfide, Mm -hmm. it's unlikely that in one single environment, all of them would form at the same time. Right. Um, But this is still, like, previous theories as to what compounds could have produced these would require much more distance and different conditions for all of them to form. Okay. So this is far and away the the closest bet we have so far. Cool. That's that's the most recent research into where life came from that we we now have a pretty good guess to go on in terms of what might have actually been there in the early earth environment and how it could have come together to produce those building blocks that eventually went on to become us. That's fascinating. Yeah, I think it's pretty incredible stuff. And considering that these researchers have been working on this same area for a very long time, it's likely they're going to keep doing so. Um, hopefully they can, you know, find out even more about where those early cells and DNA came from. Right. Yeah, I can't wait to see what they do next. Next. 
Thanks, Jesse. That's it for this week. We have show notes. Those are found on our website, doubleblindscience.com. Among those are links to all the studies we talk about and uh, future reading if you're interested. Hopefully you've enjoyed our adventure into this week's science news. Check back next week for two more new and exciting stories. And if you've got a story that you want us to cover in particular, we want to know about it. So uh, give us a tweet at DoubleBlindSci or uh, send us a story to stories at DoubleBlindScience.com. See you next next week. week. Urea experiment? Uh, no. Yes. That come up? Yes. Okay. That was that That's was the, the that was the first one. The the lightning. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. I like that. There people are still working on that. <laughs>